So in an interesting way, whereas corporations were initially chartered by countries to strengthen themselves, to strengthen their workers, their economies, we're now in a situation where they've created this international economic order. In fact, the states are getting outflanked by the corporations they created. And the corporations aren't literally autonomous from the states. They still depend upon the states for creating those legal entities, having the laws that protect their property, all of that. But the overall system really advantages the corporations at the expense of the states themselves. Welcome to SCAS Talks, a podcast from the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. My name is Nathalie von der Lea, and this time I talk to David Siepli, a Global Horizons Fellow here at SCAS. And this is another episode in the theme on global governance, where I have previously talked to Bruce Carruthers about the history of credit and credit decision-making in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries. In this episode, we will hear more about corporations and governments. So with me in the podcast studio of SCAS is David Siepli, who is a fellow within the Global Horizons Fellowship Program right now in the academic year of 2020-2021. He publishes scientific work in the fields of democratic theory, liberal theory and corporate theory. You will hear more about some of those in this episode. Very welcome to SCAS Talks. Would you like to say a few words about yourself? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the program. Yeah, I'm David Seepley. I live in Denver, Colorado, where for 13 years I taught at the University of Denver in the political science department, teaching political theory. For the last two years, I've been at the University of Virginia in the Institute for Advanced Studies and Culture. And this year, I'm honored and pleased to be a Global Horizons Fellow at the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study here in Uppsala, Sweden. Very nice to have you here. So very broadly now, just to have a brief introduction, what is your research about? So I study the relations between corporations and states or governments. Most people think of corporations as business entities, the the Bolog, but I think of them as governments. And so corporations and states are two really related but distinct ways of governing things and people. And I'm interested in how they have related and how those governance relations have changed over time. Very interesting topic, and I'm excited to learn more about this. I'm sure our listeners also want to know more. Before going a little bit deeper and into some terminology, I would really like to know how you got interested in this area of research to start with. So I was in graduate school really trained initially by sociologists. And sociologists study everything but the state. They study families and associations. And, but then I moved toward the end of my graduate school years toward political theory. And there the dichotomy that reigns is the individual and the state. Those are the two major topics, how the individual relates to the state. Uh, but I realized there was a lot missing in terms of how we're governed. And so I began research on what I thought was the most obvious missing factor, the way in which we're governed by corporations. And over the course of that, I, I quickly discovered that the usual accounts given of what a corporation is and what it does were really unsatisfactory. We usually think of them as you know, fully private, voluntary associations, just you know, a bunch of investors getting together, stockholders and founding a firm. But in fact, the real story is much more complicated, that the government is actually involved in founding these in, in various ways we can talk about. But at that point, I knew this wasn't an economics project. This is really a politics project, that corporations would not emerge in a world without governments. They are co-created by governments along with private individuals. So that became really my, my emphasis on all of my work since then trying to understand corporations more deeply and how our, our, our world now is really uh, dominated by the corporate form, not just you know, business corporations, but uh, nonprofit corporations, you know, churches, various non-governmental organizations. 
And governments themselves have been very impacted by the corporate concept, as we'll perhaps get into. And now just for my sake, but maybe also for the sake of listeners who are not really in this field, and I think it would be very good to clarify some and explain some terminology. Corporation has come up. What shall we think about there when you talk about the corporation? So it doesn't translate so directly into Swedish. Most Swedish listeners would think of the aktiebolag as the typical corporation, uh, what we would call a business corporation. And that's a helpful beginning. But what a corporation is, is both something more specific than that and something much uh, more generally applicable than that. So the corporation as an idea really began in ancient Rome and then was picked up by the medieval European church in the 11th century when Roman law of corporations was rediscovered in Justinian's digest. And it spread from there uh, into uh, kingdoms and the, the empire. And so what a corporation is, really two fundamental features. One is it is a legal entity that owns property and makes contracts and appears in court in its own name, separate from all the natural persons associated with it. So to take, I don't know, some example like what in English we call IKEA, right? IKEA. All the, the contracts are with that company and that name. It owns the property. So that's the property aspect of a corporation. But every corporation is also a little government in that it can set rules beyond the law of the land that all of those within its jurisdiction under it have to abide by. And that's the part of corporations that we usually forget, but it is uh, through most of its early years, early centuries, what was considered most valuable about the corporation, that if you incorporated, you in effect got to apply a constitutional form of government over a group of individuals. So those two features, I think, are really the core ones, that it is a, a legal entity that owns property and makes contracts in its own name, and it has governing powers uh, over those underneath it. Then we have the charter or chartered uh, corporations. I stumbled a little bit on that when preparing, so what is the charter? Yes, so not all corporations have had charters. Church corporations do not, but all lay corporations, civil corporations, the ones we're most familiar with, they all do. So a charter is like the constitution of the corporation. It is the fundamental law by which all those involved in the corporation have to abide. So there are other rules you can make once you're running a corporation. We call these bylaws or just, you know, just ordinary rules you might make. But they're written down in a charter, fundamental aspects, declaring what your name is, maybe who the members are, what the governance structure of it will be. For example, it may have a board. It will list the number of members of the board. The identity of the first board members will be listed. It will lay out how those officers are going to be selected, whether by stockholders, a combination of workers and stockholders, to speak of the octibolog, but many other ways you can do this. So these fundamental features about the corporation are laid out in that charter, which comes from the state. So the state is really setting up that government for the corporation. And one crucial other thing that that charter does, it's what really creates that legal entity that owns the property. We're accustomed to thinking of, you know, ourselves as living in a private property capitalist economy where property is owned by individuals like you and me. But that's not really the kind of economy we live in. We live in an economy where most of the productive property is owned by these abstract legal entities, these corporations. And then humans have the control rights over this but not actually the owner rights over this. So as I like to say, just to get people thinking out of their usual categories of you know, capitalism and socialism, those categories have really been outdated for over a century. Marx, in a sense, was right that you know, what he called bourgeois property, you know, privately owned property, would become a fetter on the productive powers of capital to be burst asunder and replaced by socialized property. But he was wrong to think that the dominant path forward would be having that property socialized at the level of the state. Instead, it's been socialized at the level of the corporation. The same device is used, just as the state is an abstract legal entity that owns property in its own name. That's what a corporation is. 
it's an abstract legal entity that owns the property, and then humans have control rights over it. So it's really a way of socializing property. I should just say a word about why that's such a, a powerful and productive way to, to hold property. Because on the one hand, you, natural persons, if they own property, well, they, they die, then the property has to be transferred to someone else, and they may have to have other interests. Or simply people get bored with this particular activity, they want to pull out their property and go do something else, and that can end a partnership or a kind of private firm. Uh, But with a corporation, that property is owned by the legal entity that gets to live forever. And so companies can accumulate property across generations, and they can have many, many different investors, you know, put money in to increase the size of of the pool of property. So you're both increasing the scale of the property, you're increasing the time frame that it gets to operate on, and you're dedicating this property to some specific purpose. It could be a business purpose, you know, like building medical products, but it can also be something that's not for profit, like a uh, library or a hospital or a school. Uh, These two can become very large scale and endure forever because of the corporate form. So it's a very powerful device that humans have developed to augment human powers by, in a sense, giving ownership of the property to something non-human, the corporation. Yes, very good to go through this and to continue the discussion. Is there anything else that we should explain before jumping into your research? Well, yeah, you asked about the charter. And as I mentioned, every corporation is also a little government. But the way, the form of government differs. And historically, the ancient Roman corporation and many of the early European ones were organized as little republics in which there were members who elected an officer who was a kind of governor over themselves, but accountable to them. So you might think of a medieval town where the, the townspeople elected a mayor. And this was like a little republic. The mayor was accountable to them. Or a, a medieval merchant guild where the merchants would elect a, a guildmaster, but the guildmaster was accountable to them. Or a university. It, it used to be the case that the faculty were the members of that corporation and they would elect the rector or chancellor, and that person would be accountable to them. So again, a republican form of government. But there also emerged an autocratic form of the corporation. This was in the church. Initially, the paradigm would have been the bishopric, where the property was owned by the bishopric, and then there was a single officer, the bishop, right? And so this is, of course, autocratic. They're not accountable to, to anyone. The modern business corporation is also of this form where you have one group of individuals. So this is the, I should say, this is the, uh, the Anglo-American model. And then we'll talk about the mixed, you know, European model. But the Anglo-American model, the stockholders, you know, one group, those who have been invested in the corporation, elect a government over another group, the employees, for the purpose of labor extraction. Technically, we would say that's an imperial, imperial relationship, right? That's how empires work. It's certainly not a little republic. And the board has what we call autocratic authority over the employees, meaning the employees don't have any input in terms of who rules over them. That is decided by someone else. There is, of course, then various mixed models. Germany, Austria, and most of the, probably all of the Nordic countries have a mixed model where some of the members of the board are representatives of the stockholders, but some are representatives of the employees. So it's partly republic and partly autocratic. It's a kind of mixed hybrid. But many things are possible with the way in which you govern a corporation precisely because it separates ownership from control. If you have a partnership, whoever are the owners, they're the ones who control it. And if they have good leadership skills, it will do well. If they don't, it won't. But in a corporation, ownership is by the legal entity. So for those who control it, they can be selected on completely different criteria of their ability to effectively manage the organization, whether it's a church, a town, or a business corporation. So again, that's one of the governance advantages of the corporation. And that charter will lay out whether it's going to be a Republican form, autocratic in form, or some kind of a hybrid. Good. We learned a lot by, just by explaining three words or three terms. You're currently working on a book with the working title, if I've understood correctly, Constitutional Democracy and the Cooperation. So this includes quite a lot of what you just uh, talked about. But what is your um, 
main claim in this upcoming book or in your upcoming work? Yes. So I would say there's the main theoretical point and then there's the historical story. And the theoretical point we've just been discussing about what a corporation really is, there's a very prevalent view that the business corporation is owned by its stockholders. And this leads to a particular governance pattern for corporations that's dominant in the Anglo-American world, in which the stockholders are given all of the authority over the corporation, and they have all the claims to all the benefits of the corporation because they're considered the owners. What I'm showing is that that's really mythology. The whole point of the corporation is to have an abstract legal entity own all the assets. The stockholders just own stock, which is a kind of financial instrument that gives them various rights, but it doesn't give them any of the rights of ownership over the corporation. They don't own any of the property of the corporation. They can't use it. They can't lend it out to others. They can't use it as you know, collateral to take out a loan. They can't exclude others from it. And even the profits that a business corporation makes, they have actually no legal claim upon those profits. What we call dividends are given out at the discretion of management. So it's completely a myth to say that they own the assets of the corporation. But once you accept that myth, various things follow, and, and we've been living under that. So more may be said about that, but that's the main theoretical point, is to get that across, that corporations are really little governments. They dominate our, our world now. Almost all productive property, working property, is owned by these abstract legal entities Then humans control. And then to get us to think more creatively about how those control structures can be set up and get out of this kind of straitjacket that this notion of stockholder ownership puts us in. But the historical narrative that I'm really focusing on, it really centers around this paradox, that the monarchs of feudal and early modern Europe overwhelmingly chartered republican corporations, while the constitutional republics right, of the modern world have overwhelmingly chartered autocratic corporations. This is very paradoxical, and I, I would say even uh, somewhat nonsensical once we really get at this. But I'm trying to understand that story, why that has come about, and what some of the consequences have been. That's the main story I'm, I'm trying to tell in the book. We've covered this a little bit already, the history, and you were just into this. How was the corporation, and also along with that, or in parallel with that, governments, how have they evolved? And what parallels can you see there? Yes. So it turns out their interrelationship uh, goes very deep, both in history and in structure. So the first corporations of ancient Rome were the municipalities, the towns of Rome. And one of those, because they got to own their own property and they got to set uh, laws for their populations. But one of those municipalities was the city of Rome itself, and that was the Roman state, the Civitas. And as the Justinian's Digest says, the corporation is modeled on the state on the res publica. And by that, it meant that just as the state owns property in its own name, so a corporation owns property in its own name, and that it has to be represented in court by lawyers, because it itself is invisible, intangible. It's a kind of legal abstraction. So the corporation is modeled on the state historically in Rome, but then inter interestingly, in medieval Europe, Europe in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries It did not have legally grounded states as we think about them uh, today. They had kings, and the kings considered themselves the owners of the property. And so Europeans, in a sense, turned this around and modeled their states on the corporation, meaning this idea of a state that owns the property. So, you know, the, the battleships of a country, the warplanes, but also, you know, any other kinds of, say, if you have public universities, the universities that are owned by the state. That's all state property. It's not literally owned by any natural persons, even though natural persons have control rights over it. That idea comes from the corporation. States borrow that, or, or you know, countries borrow that from the corporation. And a particularly dramatic example of this is modern constitutionalism, the modern constitutional republic, meaning here a, a republic that is founded by a written charter, a written constitution that lays out what the offices will be, what the powers of those officers will be, how they will be selected. 
uh, what we think was a modern constitution that founds and limits a government. The first example of that was the U.S. Constitution, founded in 1787, some years after the independence movement there. And if you really look at the details, that was modeled on the corporation, in fact, on these old Republican-style corporations. And this comes from the fact that the earliest American colonies were literal corporations of the English crown. So Massachusetts Bay Colony was Massachusetts Bay Company. Virginia Colony was Virginia Company. These were actually for-profit companies with these members that were settled in these colonies in the New World, that we now call the U.S. And they, were, they had these charters that were the constitutions for these colonies, and they set out, they authorized the government and structured that government and determined who you know, the members would be and who got to vote over who would be the officers. So in a sense, the charters became the constitutions of these little colonial republics. Uh, Massachusetts is perhaps the, uh, the clearest example of this, since Virginia ultimately became a, a royal colony. But with independence, the Americans you know, broke ties with the crown that had chartered these corporate colonies, but they liked this idea of a charter-limited government. They wanted to keep that idea but they needed some new sovereign in order to charter these governments for them. And it seemed there was no obvious new sovereign to turn to. Well, this was the American innovation in terms of you know, uh, the history of constitutionalism to think that, well, the sovereign people can charter a corporation just as the king used to charter corporations. And so if you really look at the legal nuts and bolts of this, you have to think of the the U.S. government, the U.S. Constitution, as the charter of a, a new kind of corporate government, which is the U.S. government, where this constitution, like a corporate charter, it lays out the offices, authorizes them, sets what their duties are, and what the limits are right, of this new government. So all the things that we think of as American contributions to modern constitutionalism, written charters, the uh, ratifying conventions for charters, uh, the possibility to amend charters, the way in which judges will use this fundamental constitution to strike down laws that are inconsistent with the charter, what we call constitutional review, the idea of executives being elected. All of this is just governance technology that was used for governing corporations now applied to the state. So you see here really the, the way in which this earlier Republican model of a corporation became the model for the constitutional republic. And given that, that sort of history, then it's especially ironic that this constitutional republic would then turn around and start chartering all of these kind of autocratic business corporations. So that's the kind of early chapters of the, of the book describing this kind of Republican corporate history of the modern constitutional state, uh, and then getting into the, the origins of the business corporation and how that uh, fit into the story. It's really fascinating how this has evolved alongside, really, and um, really belongs together. You mentioned previously stockholders of a corporation. What role do they actually play? What do they do? The history of the business corporation is fairly long and complicated. I would say the first two really important business corporations on the world stage would have been the Dutch East India Company and the English East India Company. And the Dutch East India Company was really the, the initial innovator and really helped pioneer this idea of a business enterprise that have a, a charter with a separate legal entity that owned all the property that would live forever and would have these outside investors that would put money in, what we now call the stockholders. They called them the participanten. That was a very powerful way to pool private capital from all sorts of different kinds of investors, large and small, into this big enterprise that would then trade overseas in this very risky, treacherous business operation, also a very violent one. And that was a very successful model, and so the English copied it. But when they copied it, they somewhat misunderstood what the Dutch had done. And so they used some of their older vocabulary for thinking about these business entities and applied it to the modern business corporation. And long story short, what they did is that they assumed that stockholders were actually the owners of the corporation rather than an abstract legal entity owning it. And uh, it was easy enough to get confused on the point at the time. 
but the idea is that these investors would you know, somehow own a piece of the corporation as if they were partners in a partnership. That's not really literally the case. They don't own any piece of the, the company. All those assets are owned by the, the legal entity. But they do help put in some of the money early on in the, the early investments. And then these stock markets are just current stockholders trading their stock with other people who want to buy that stock. And if the company is doing well, you know, maybe higher payouts will be given, the dividends. Uh, and the price of the, the stock will go up. And if the company is doing poorly, it will go down. Where the stockholders are given control rights is really up to the, the nature of the charters or the, or the corporate law that governs them. In the Anglo-American world, because they were thought of as the owners, they were given all the control rights. They're given the sole right to elect the board members of the company. And the assumption is that those board members should work solely in their interest because they are the owners. And so that's the Anglo-American model. And while that worked reasonably well when stockholders were long-term investors, even as late as the 1960s in the U.S., the typical stockholder held stock for six years, now they become very short-term investors. So in the U.S., even about uh, four years ago, it was only four months that the typical stock was held. So you can't really plan for the long-term if you know, your stockholders just want payouts on a very short-term basis. And now with, you know, free stock trading and everyone home for the pandemic and trading stocks, you know, I'm sure the, the average length of stock is even shorter and shorter. So the whole advantage of the corporate form is to lock in capital for the long term so that you can really focus on a long term enterprise, invest capital for the long term, train workers to this capital. But that's really being undermined now by the very short term focus of the stockholder in the Anglo-American model. And so, you know, in, in brief, that's the kind of role of the stockholder and, and maybe an exaggerated uh, role that in the Anglo-American countries is attributed to it and some of the dysfunctions that's coming about because of that. So what about the stockholder-dominated corporation? Does that make any sense today? At the beginning, the stockholder-dominated corporation was a model that was understandable and made some sense. Because in the 17th century, when these were really first getting going, capital was very scarce, and the stockholders tended themselves to be merchants who were involved in the actual activities of, for example, the, the English East India Company. So they're very knowledgeable about the industry and they were engaged in it over the long term. And there weren't the same kind of liability uh, limitations at that point. So they had to you know, run it forbearance and, and caution. And so they tended to be you know, oriented for longer term And because their capital contributions were so important, it made sense to give them these kind of control rights uh, over the company, that, that they're the ones who get to elect the board member to justify you know, their involvement. But this no longer makes sense in the modern period. Today, the typical stockholder doesn't know anything about the industry. They're just an outside investor, perhaps in some other country, they do not hold the stock for very long, maybe just a matter of months. They have no liability for any of the debts that the company might accrue or any of the harms it might commit or even any of the crimes it might commit. That's all borne by the legal entity. They don't have any responsibility for that. And uh, their contributions are no longer so necessary for the company. In fact, corporations for the past 20 years have been buying back more stock than they have been issuing because they can get all of the capital they need for their operations, either from retained earnings or from borrowing from banks or from issuing bonds on the bond market so they don't really need so much their stockholders. So despite the fact that stockholders are the least knowledgeable, least invested, least liable, and least necessary 
of all the people involved in the company, yet we say they are the only ones who get to elect the board and the board should be run entirely in their interest. Okay, just on its face, this doesn't make any sense. It's just a historical holdover. You would never design the governance structure of a corporation this way today if you were starting from scratch. And I think we really do need to start from scratch in thinking about how to organize the governance of these entities. That sounds like a system that is taking a turn for the worse, or what do you think? Well, it was thought early on in the early years of globalization, the globalization of the economy, the disruption of existing labor patterns and supply chains that the Anglo-American corporation would really be the superior model because it's much easier for them to hire and fire workers, for example, than a company operating under the co-determination system where you know, half of the board members, say of the supervisory board or even of the operating board, would be uh, worker representatives. It's much harder to, to fire workers under those situations. But over the, the long term, it seems clear that those countries that gave their workers more of a say over the company have actually done as well or better than the Anglo-American companies. So I'm thinking here of you know, Germany, which has a remarkably strong economy, Austria, you know, Sweden, you know, uh, Norway, you know, Finland, Denmark. All these have done very well in adapting to this new global economy, and they've also kept you know, inequality has grown everywhere in all these countries, but it has grown less in those countries than in the countries that are dominated by stockholders, where instead of the benefits of those firms being more widely distributed, they're all concentrated in the hands of the stockholders and the executives who are paid now typically, you know, the Fortune 500 companies, the biggest companies in the U.S., over 80% of the, the CEO, you know, top executive pay, comes in the form of stock and stock options, essentially bribing them to focus upon the interests of the stockholders rather than on the workers or on research and development or on a you know, broader set of stakeholders in the community. And it turns out that having that broader stakeholder participation is maybe an advantage when you're trying to adapt to the complicated you know, winds of globalization. So it turns out that what was supposed to be this inflexible model of the, the co-determination has proved to be you know, quite successful and had some other you know, benefits as well. So there is now, I think, a lot of rethinking going on, even in the Anglo-American world, about how to govern corporations to give more attention to what we call the stakeholders rather than just the stockholders. How difficult is it to change a system like that? Well, it's clearly very difficult at this point because of the entrenched interest now in the existing system. So the business roundtable in the U.S. is a very powerful body of the leading corporations. For many years in the you know, 60s and 70s, they always argued for a stakeholder view that it's not just about the stockholders, it's about all these different you know, community members, workers, etc. But starting in the 80s, and then through the 90s and the 2000 aughts, they really shifted to an emphasis upon the stockholders. There was a lot of literature being generated by American scholars associated with uh, what we call the law and economics movement, really emphasizing the idea that stockholders are the owners, or at least they're the you know, technical term residual claimants, the ones who get what's ever left when everyone else has been paid. So they have the greatest incentive to try to maximize the size of the profits so let's give them the control rights. So there's a lot of emphasis upon the stockholder coming out of this in that period. And that's the reason that CEOs came to be paid so heavily in stock and stock options, so that they would really focus on the stockholders. Well, the Business Roundtable, in just the past couple of years, came out with a statement saying that, no, they're really now going to focus upon all stakeholders. But the real test of this is, have they changed the way in which they are paid? And the answer is no, they're still paid overwhelmingly in stock and stock options. And so sure enough, you know, during the pandemic, it's not at all clear that they've at all changed their behavior. They continue to focus upon the stockholders. And so, yes, people are at home doing the day trading, 
But this is really in the long run, just contributing to the very you know, short-term focus of the companies. The real question is, will these companies have the kind of robust future you know, that they might otherwise have if they're just focusing upon pleasing these very short-term stockholders instead of reserving some of their profits for you know, expansion, research and development, worker training, if they're just pumping these all out to their stockholders, are they really going to have that long-term growth, that long-term innovation that will in the long-term benefit those you know, workers and even the, the stock traders themselves? There'll be a bigger a pie to participate in. And then, I mean, if you're on the winning side, you don't want to change the system. You hold a lot of stocks then maybe. You don't want to go back to the salary. Well, that's right. The kind of pay now that executives get from this system is, you know, so high. It's somewhat ironic that uh, early on, one of the arguments for strengthening the stockholder was that managers, they were just unaccountable to anyone and were, you know, giving themselves all sorts of perks, high salary, fancy boardrooms with mahogany tables, you know, first class tickets on international airline travel. And so let's give stockholders more power to hold them accountable. But all they really did was change the compensation such that if CEOs raise the stock price, they get enormous windfall profits. So now, you know, your typical American, you know, CEO is getting paid over $10 million a year primarily due to this stock-based compensation. And so instead, they're being paid much more, much higher you know, incomes than they were in the bad old days when, when we thought they were too fat and happy. And of course, they don't want to give that up, right? And so these two big constituents, the, the stockholders, now these big institutional investors that are short-term stockholders, and the CEOs themselves, both very powerful, not only in the economic system, but in the political system, they really don't want to give that system up. And so it's a bit of a struggle to try and redirect this ship. So this podcast episode is within the theme of global governance. And you've pointed out uh, previously to me that the connection between your research and this broad theme can be made since the constitutional democracies are trying to do this governing in concert. But uh, constitutional democracies are also the ones primarily chartering the corporations that they are trying with limited success to govern. And I got a bit intrigued by this last part. So who is governing the corporations? The story here of, of globalization is a very ironic one. At the end of the Cold War, there was, of course, a, a lot of optimism about creating this new international market system. And I would say you know, the U.S. was really at the forefront of pushing this idea where there could be a free flow of capital and capital would go to wherever the returns would be highest, which would benefit the workers because then there'd be capital coming in, creating new jobs and the returns to that capital would be high, and the capital would all find the, the most efficient place in the world for it to generate wealth, and the workers would benefit everywhere around the world, and, and all boats would be lifted. And I would say the countries like the U.S. that had strong corporations you know, thought that they in particular would be benefited by this, because if you really look at it, a country's strength is very strongly correlated with the strength of its corporations. The U.S. has a very long history of this, even if you think narrowly in terms of something like you know, military power. You know, a lot of this, the American military might, is built on the back of its corporations. Companies like Northrop Grumman, Boeing, McDonnell Douglas, some of these big aerospace, aeronautic companies, just to name those, that are building innovative airplanes and so forth. So there's these relations between government and the corporations, you know, building that kind of strength. And that's played out in terms of you know, other kinds of companies you know, making commodities that are internationally desired, and these profits come back to the home company, and there's a tax base built and so forth. So it seemed like a really good plan to build this international you know, trading system and you know, unleash your, your corporations into this global system. But one of the ironies is 
that part of this trading system, or one of the, the rules is, say in the, the, the WTO, is that every country has to treat foreign corporations just like its own domestic corporations. And that seems, you know, fair level playing field for all corporations. But what this does is, is it allows corporations now to shift its operations and its headquarters and where it does labor to whatever jurisdiction is most advantageous to it. And therefore, in a sense, playing the different states off of one another. One of the examples of this, due to the particular way in which the U.S. taxes its corporations, corporations have been able to get out of a lot of their taxes by just shifting around where they take their profits. So, for example, if an American company, let's say Apple, makes a computer and wants to sell it to Europe, well, instead of, say, assembling it in the U.S. and selling it directly to France, it will first sell it to an Irish subsidiary and then have the Irish subsidiary sell it on to France. Well, why? Well, the U.S. had historically been a relatively high-tax jurisdiction for corporations. And if you took all your profits in the U.S., you'd have a high tax on it. So instead, sell it at almost no profit to Ireland, to your subsidiary there. Then Ireland is a low-tax jurisdiction, so have Ireland sell it to France and have all the profits taken in Ireland so that global profits are very low that way, right? So that's just one example in terms of the profits, how you, the corporations can now shift these around to its advantage. So now it's no longer so advantage for the U.S. in terms of tax revenues to have this international system. Well, now you have the same thing going on in terms of workers, of course. Now companies will send the labor portion of their production out to the low-cost labor regimes. Now, if you have a really dirty part of the process, we'll send that somewhere where the environmental laws are very lax. This puts pressure on all of the states to lower their tax rates for corporations, to lower their labor standards, to lower their environmental standards in order to attract the capital of the corporations that they become so dependent upon for creation of jobs, technology, and so forth. So in an interesting way, Whereas corporations were initially chartered by countries to strengthen themselves, to strengthen their workers, their economies, we're now in a situation where they've created this international economic order. In fact, the states are getting outflanked by the corporations they created. And the corporations aren't literally autonomous from the states. They still depend upon the states for creating those legal entities, having the laws that protect their property, all of that. But the overall system really advantages the corporations at the expense of the states themselves. So who is running who, really? Well, yeah, it's, it's a good question, too. In the U.S., we have the particular disease of giving constitutional rights to corporations. And there's a very notorious case that came down in 2010, allowing corporations to spend unlimited sums in U.S. elections. This, again, goes all back to the mythology that stockholders own the corporation. The U.S. courts aren't, in fact, saying that corporations are citizens, therefore they get the constitutional rights of citizens. Their confusion is more subtle. What they're saying is corporations are just associations of citizens, the stockholders. And so we're not actually giving constitutional rights to corporations. We're just upholding the constitutional rights of their stockholders. And stockholders have a right to give money to politicians or to spend money independent of politicians for and against a, a campaign. So corporations have this you know, right. They're just you know, spending money of stockholders. Well, really, if you look at it, that's not what's happening. Stockholders have their own funds, their own you know, private bank accounts, and they can spend as much money as they want in the elections. What you're really allowing is the corporate treasury to be used by current corporate management to spend money in elections. And of course, they'll spend money on policies in, in favor of politicians that are going to advantage them. So yes, it's very much a question, who is the dog and who is the tail being wagged now in this system? So related to this, can and should you run countries like corporations or companies? Yeah, we get that a lot, especially in the US, but I think maybe you know around the world, people like to say, well, we should run our country more like a company, more like a corporation, because they're efficient. 
But Adam Smith, the founder of, of modern political economy, did study what was happening in India with the East India Company, which had become the effective ruler of uh, large parts of India in his day. And he basically came to the conclusion, and this is just a paraphrase of, of The Wealth of Nations, his work, that countries run by for-profit corporations, that's the worst form of government you could have. And if you think about it, you know, what is the ideal for a government simplified? It is to provide as much service to the citizens as possible for as low cost as possible. Well, what's the ideal of a corporation? Well, it's to provide as little service to its customers as possible for as high of a cost as possible. This is the exact opposite of what you would want. In some ways, they are, yes, very skilled at running organizations, but that doesn't mean their instincts for how to run them are what you want in a democracy. And it's interesting also to see the kinds of habits that you know, corporate executives bring to the government when they are brought into government. In the U.S., we've seen this in some recent presidencies. It's interesting to compare in this regard, say, the Clinton presidency with the George W. Bush presidency and the Trump presidency and the different business styles they brought to it. Clinton, in the early years of the the Bill Clinton administration, it was known for being run like a bunch of academic seminars because he brought a bunch of college professors, you know, with him into the government. And, you know, that's how they think about addressing policy issues. Let's kind of have a workshop and talk about this. Whereas George Bush came out of the corporate world, the world of oil companies. And so he was notorious for bringing a lot of executives in with him. And they ran things in a very kind of corporate style, but still in a kind of boardroom style. Whereas Trump comes out of the world of sole proprietorships. He was a real estate mogul. He was not a corporate person. He's not used to having to take direction from a board, let alone a Congress, right? So he wanted to run it like his fiefdom. And so that style was very much in, you know, in evidence in how he ran uh, or wanted to run you know, the executive branch uh, and really wanted to run the company as a whole, country as a whole, just couldn't stand resistance and, and therefore wanted loyalty over anything. That's exactly how you think if you're a uh, sole proprietor of a proprietorship. So I think, you know, we need to think seriously about not just the influence of corporations in terms of, you know, money, contributions to politicians, but also in terms of the style of government that is associated with having executives in government. And even you can think about the style of government you want in your businesses as a political question, what would be the secondary consequences of that in terms of their own participation in government if they're brought in to help govern? You know, what would be their instincts in terms of listening to a broader set of constituencies or just, you know, more narrowly, the business constituency? I think we should think of corporations more broadly in terms of an overall political economy of the country, in terms of not just economy, but politics as a whole. You mentioned previously non-profit organizations such as universities. So uh, what about universities? Are they also run like corporations or what are your thoughts on this? In Europe, most universities are, we call public universities, state institutions. The faculty are employees of the state. They operate by the rules governing state employees. The universities are funded by taxes. We have these kinds of universities also in the U.S. and in Britain. Uh, But the Anglo-American countries also have a long tradition of uh, what we call private universities, but really by that we mean corporate universities. So Oxford and Cambridge would be two famous examples in the U.K. Harvard, Princeton, Yale would be famous American examples. And these are corporations, but they're not for-profit corporations. They're not run like businesses. Again, historically, the faculty would have been the members of the corporation and would have elected the the government, that is, the the board of, of trustees, the board of directors. But that isn't how it works today. Now, typically, a charter creates a board 
And these boards, how are those members selected of the board? Well, often they're just self-replacing. When one board member retires, the existing board members now elect a new member as the board. But there can be other rules. Sometimes the graduates get to vote and elect a certain number of members. I don't know of any place that has faculty influence much anymore, but that's you know, a possibility. But in terms of governance, that's you know, how they're governed now. But again, the idea is that the property is all owned by an abstract legal entity. So it's not owned by the state, by the government, but it's not also owned by any natural persons, not by the donors, not by the faculty, not by the students. It's all owned by this abstract legal entity, which lives forever, and that allows the property to be dedicated forever to the particular purpose of education. And that has turned out to be a successful and powerful manner of doing governance of universities. It's in a way an alternative between these two extremes, you may say, of a state ownership, state control model, or a individual ownership, market control model. This is a a separate, you know, third sector, nonprofit corporate model, which is, you know, prevalent not only in universities in the U.S., but also, also used to be very widespread for things like hospitals, libraries, all sorts of other charitable foundations as a kind of, you know, third piece of civil society, the overall way in which human associational activities are managed and governed. And speaking of universities, you have spent half a year also at the Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. What did you do there? Well, I was working on this this same book project. But it's interesting that wherever one goes, there's always something unexpected that one learns, especially with a project like this, which has so many facets and intersects with different national histories and practices in various ways. And the real lesson for me in Hungary was, again, about relations between corporations and states. So in the U.S., we worry about the power of corporations and the power that they have over the government. And I've been giving you some examples of that today. And that's because the U.S. remains very much a rule of law country where the corporation's property is very well protected by the existing laws of the land. Their boards are very autonomous from the government. There's very little direct government influence, at least on, on most you know, boards. You can think of some exceptions. But they get to operate independently of the government. It's not direct government control of them. And so it's easy for us to just see, see this as a kind of one-way influence of corporations then kind of getting their tentacles around the government through campaign contributions and personnel exchanges. But in Hungary, you see a different story emerging under Fidesz and Orban where not so much for its international corporations, but for its domestic corporations, the party and therefore the existing regime really gaining control of its corporations. And, you know, you can do it in very simple and indirect ways. Simply having some person who is closely tied to the government, you know, of Hungary, have a seat on the board, you know, arranged for them that immediately gives them a position in the the heart of the control structure of that company, that at that point they can't undertake any activity that would be against the interests of the the regime because immediately, you know, the regime would hear about this. They don't have to own any of the property. They don't have to buy anything. But just because you can, the way that the control is, you can just get a member on the board and that will change the way in which that company will operate. But then there are all sorts of other ways in which the the government can use its tax authorities, its auditing authorities, its very regulatory bodies to cause trouble for companies that it doesn't like, possibly getting them to sell to its allies and therefore taking control of that way, and just really using companies as part of its patronage network. So EU funding going to Hungarian companies then get contracts from the government to do construction work. Well, surprise, surprise, the Hungarian companies that get these contracts are all ones with close ties to the government. And, you know, it's hard often to find the details because these aren't transparent. 
but it's not a hard assumption to make that these companies then turn around and support the party just as the party is supporting it. So what one learns from this is that in a way we're on the horns of a dilemma with respect to corporations. Where rule of law is strong, you have the potential problem of corporations coming to capture the government. Where rule of law is weak, you have the potential problem of the government capturing its corporations. Is there a way to find a middle here, a balance or a kind of third way to allow corporations to do what was originally supposed to be their mission of having a long-term focus on developing property uh, with innovations that will create jobs, create growth, create wealth, that will be of broad public benefit. The earliest business corporations could only get charters. If they had some clear public benefit, they would be providing. And in fact, that no smaller privately owned companies were currently providing. So turns out that the earliest business corporations were always these very large entities running things like overseas trade or a bank or an insurance company or major infrastructure projects. Because those things had a clear public benefit and they were beyond the scale of individuals to do. That mission of a corporation is still a very valuable one. And we have to figure out how to preserve it without allowing it to corrupt democratic systems or allowing authoritarian systems to to corrupt it. I was also thinking that in Hungary, and especially in the case of the Central European University, the government is also putting a lot of pressure or control on the universities. Yes, that's very true. I was, uh, as you mentioned, affiliated with the Central European University in Budapest, and it has been forced to uh, leave the country because, you know, some some regulations were made, made in very general terms, but the only university in the country that was actually affected by them was the Central European University, which, because it had been chartered in the U.S., in the state of New York, was harder for the government to get control of. So since it couldn't get control of it, it essentially forced it to evacuate, forced it to emigrate. So it's, now it's in Vienna. So yes, again, in the case of a public university system, you can see the potential danger if the democratic government comes into the hands of a regime with more authoritarian intentions. They have the potential, if there aren't good protections in place, to replace the education ministers and the board members of those public universities with political allies, potentially corrupting the independence of the universities. We again have a concern on the opposite side of the spectrum of our private universities coming too much under the control of our for-profit business corporations, which give contributions. You know, business people serve on the boards of the, the universities because they're wealthy donors, their friends are potential wealthy donors. It's a good way to raise money for the university to have them involved. But there's funding the research and your know, patents are being generated that are owned by the university and then licensed out to companies. And so, you know, a lot of us have a fear that the public interest mission of our private corporate universities is potentially being corrupted by the narrower profit mission of our business corporations. So again, you know, how do you find this middle zone where you have an entity that is oriented toward the public good, but is not directly under public control or for-profit, you know, private control? That's the question for us going forward. You're a Global Horizons fellow here at SCAS. The Global Horizons program, what is it about here? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yes. So this is the inaugural year for it. Uh, my understanding is that it currently has a five-year funding, so it's like a, a five-year program at least. And its a mission is to develop 
new governance strategies for our globalized world. And so this year, there are two fellows, myself and Karsten Petrogard, who is an anthropologist. And, you know, I have to say, given the onset of the pandemic, or I should just say the resurgence of the pandemic, our horizons haven't been perhaps as global as initially envisioned. Our horizons have been fairly limited to Uppsala. But nonetheless, this will hopefully you know, plug us into a, an ongoing network of scholars who are interested in these issues and an interdisciplinary set of scholars, because this is very much an interdisciplinary issue where it will, it will take the particular expertise you know, of, of many different fields in order to put together kind of you know, synthetic, comprehensive you know, new models for, for tackling governance issues. This global yet you know, decentralized world, I should say, you know, in terms of kind of globally integrated markets, but fragmented states and governance system for it. So you bring different aspects together in this um, program, and you've been here for a little bit more than half a year. Any new insights that you have gained here? I know you've been at other institutes before, and what's special about SCUS? So I'm one of the three fellows who is housed in one of the buildings that is on the grounds of the Botanic Garden here, which used to be the King's Garden. And uh, as a person who very much loves nature, it is an immense privilege to know that I'm uh, living in the King's Garden, <laughs> now the public's garden, and I get to take my walks every day in this beautiful space. So of all the different fellowships I've been on, I've never felt quite so clearly privileged as I have given just the setting of where I am living. And then we have our lectures and our seminars in the building next door here, the Linianum. So it's a very special place historically. I learned about Uppsala University and college, the famous dissection theater, which I was so looking forward to touring here. Unfortunately, uh, it's closed for renovations. This wasn't even because of the pandemic, just because of uh, normal upkeep. So I've not uh, been able to see it. But anyway, you know, it was one of these world-famous historic universities. And uh, you know, again, I have this interest in corporations, and it too was one of these you know, medieval European corporate universities. And it operated as a little government, and it had its own laws. It had its own court system. And I just found out in a recent tour we got It even had the right to execute people, and it did execute some people. It would have to get the king's permission to uh, finally you know, say on that. But just showing how much of a, a government you know, a, a corporation uh, can be. And you know, again, as I say, everywhere you go, there's something new and surprising that I learn about my topic because of the locale. And so if I might say something further about the university that I learned that completely took me by surprise, which is that it has also these, I guess they're called student houses, somewhat like what we in the U.S. would think of as fraternities and sororities, these you know, student uh, social groups. Uh, but here, they really operate as little corporations of the old historic type of the old Republican member corporations where the students are themselves the members. They have a charter that functions as their constitution. I'm told they were modeled on the church corporations, such as the bishopric and, I suspect, the cathedral chapter. And I, when they were describing the governance structure, I immediately identified it, you know, from like 13th century church, you know, governance relations. And I was just so struck by that. And that these things are still ongoing here. These traditions are still ongoing. The students still govern these. They elect their boards. They have their officers. And, you know, it's just such a delight to, to see this. And I'm, I'm going to be, you know, getting some of these charters and uh, hope to do a little, you know, historical study of these. It's just a, a great example of how some of those old Republican, you know, corporations which have almost disappeared, had nonetheless survived into the, into the modern age. Thank you very much for being on SCUS Talks. It was a pleasure to talk to you and learn more about your research. Thanks. Thank you very much for your questions and for the opportunity to share this work with you and your listeners. 
And thank you for listening to SCAS Talks, a podcast by the Swedish Collegium for Advanced Study. This was the second episode in the theme Global Governance. This time I've talked to David Siepley, fellow within the Global Horizons Fellowship Program here at SCAS. In the previous episode, we have heard Bruce Carruthers on the topic of trust, credit and credit ratings as the basis of a modern economy. Do you like SCAS Talks? Please recommend this podcast to your colleagues and friends. In previous episodes, we have covered different aspects of the coronavirus pandemic, the study of languages, and have also dived into the topic of diversity. We are sure there's something of interest for everybody. You can find SCAS Talks on Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, and most podcast apps. Subscribe to us, and you won't miss any new content. My name is Nathalie von der Leer and I would like to thank David Siepley once again for joining SCAS Talks and you, of course, for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>